you realize when you think about the numbers of cases we do or the, you know, the opportunities we get, like, you know, dealing with this team or that team or WWE or whatever, you realize that those things would not have happened if I hadn't been here, if I hadn't said yes, if I hadn't done it, you know, and you think about like the book Outliers, you know, and the Malcolm Gladwell thing, all those people and their successes, they had an opportunity and they said yes to it. Mm -hmm. The yes is important. You've got to say yes to these things. We said yes. Tracy and I said yes. It wasn't just me. It was her too. We're going to get to a Tracy we question. Said, yeah, we said <laughs> yes to this opportunity and that uh, transcends, you know, a lot of time. And so these opportunities come around because we said yes, because we're here, because we've done the work and people recognize that I can do these things because I have the experience to do it. Yeah. Medical director of the world games, the USFL, all these things. I mean, people ask me to do these mm -hmm. things because they know we can do it. It's not just me. It's the whole practice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lewis and Kyle show, an interview podcast where my friend Lewis and I interview incredible people, uh, entrepreneurs, investors, authors, thought leaders, creators, and more. Today we have another amazing episode. This one is near and dear to my heart. Uh, my girlfriend of going on seven years, I actually got to interview her father uh, after a long time of, of learning from him. Uh, his name is Dr. Jeff Dugas. Dr. Dugas is an orthopedic surgeon and the managing partner of the Andrews Sports Medicine Clinic here in Birmingham, which is a world-renowned um, institute where athletes from all around the world, including people like Brett Favre, Michael Jordan, and Drew Brees, uh, to name just a few, come to get their surgeries and to get rehabilitated. Uh, Dr. Dugas is a pillar of both the Birmingham community and of the orthopedic community at large. Um, he serves as a team doctor for Troy, for Vestavia, for uh, USA Cheer, and he's the medical director for the USFL, the WWE, and I'm sure I'm missing a few more things there. Uh, he sits on community boards and really pours himself uh, into others and the betterment of the world around him. Um, throughout this conversation, we cover a lot of different stuff, but we kind of walk through his early life, his education, his career, his philosophy on giving, as well as his philosophy on work and hard work. Um, we talk a lot about his family and what his family means to him. Uh, the story behind Dread River and uh, how being an orthopedic surgeon is a lot more like being a coach or a teacher than it is like being anything else. Uh, this is a really fun episode, as you'll see throughout the conversation, and I look forward to you listening to it, and I'll switch to it now. Doc, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Kyle and Lewis. Absolutely. Lewis and Kyle. Um, so I'll, I'll intro you in, in our, uh, in the introduction, kind of tell a little bit about our relationship, uh, and who you are, but to start, I want to kind of set the stage. You're a renowned orthopedic surgeon. You're the managing partner of Andrew sports medicine, which is a, a world renowned organization, a team doctor for Troy and a bunch of other uh, teams. You're the medical director for the WWE. You own a distillery in Birmingham. Uh, seems like you run out of time in the day. 
But I want to bring all of that back to uh, your work ethic and where that comes from. Then I want to start in a little attic in New York and your dad and your mom and what they taught you about how to work hard. So I actually have to say that it came from in the generation of people that I recall, it came from my grandparents to my parents, to us and my, my grandparents, all four of them, um, were first generation, uh, America and my grandparents on my mother's side are Italian. My mother's full-blooded Italian. My dad is from a combined kind of French, Canadian, Russian, Polish, Slovakian type of background. My dad's an only child. My mom's oldest of three girls and my grandfathers worked their fingers to the bone. My, my grandfather, on my mother's side was a welder, welded submarines and had a welding business of his own, but went and did military contracts and just worked, didn't know any other way. Six days a week, seven days a week, he, he worked. Um, he was a cigar smoker, fantastic, you know, father and, and husband and, um, he, he died of lung cancer in his, in his late, mid to late seventies, but worked incredibly hard. My grandfather, my dad's side worked three jobs at a time. He would get three hours of sleep a day, work three jobs. And, uh, both of my grandmothers worked and I can remember my grandfather on my father's side, he was a big Yankees fan. We used to go up there in the summer times and my mom would go up there with us cause she was a teacher. So she had summers off. So we'd go up there and my grandfather would take me to this pool hall, you know, beer club pool hall. And, and all the guys in the pool hall would give me quarters to play pool. I mean, I was five or six and I'm hanging out in beer hall with my grandfather <laughs> watching Yankees games and on Sundays, which was his only day off. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the work ethic came from, from them and, and my parents were the first people in their families and they were the first generation to go to college. So the goal of my grandparents was to see their kids, you know, get out and go to college. So from that, my, my parents both had incredible work ethics. My mother has, I don't know, four master's degrees or something everywhere we moved you know, mom would have to get a different master's degree because they required it for her to teach in whatever state we were living in. My father has a PhD in organic chemistry and traveled the world in sales and marketing and retired at 55. And just, you know, he, I, I was raised by people that knew, how to, knew the value of hard work and the reward of working hard. So I think that me and my siblings all knew how to work hard from a pretty young age. We had really good examples of the value of, of a good work ethic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen you work for a long time and it's very impressive. So to hear the, the background there is interesting. Um, I, I want to next go to a period of your life that you talk about a lot as being defining, which is like. I'm not sure what age you were, but you, you changed high schools at one yeah. point mm -hmm. and that had, that, that was hard for you. Can you talk about that experience and what you learned from it? Yeah. My dad was in sales and marketing. I mean, he, he, he was originally in chemistry and he was doing bench research with benzene, which is a really powerful carcinogen and 
when I was born, thankfully he made the decision to ask for a sales job. So they gave him an entry level sales job and he moved up the company. And by the time I was in junior high and high school, he was being, he we moved to, he moved his office to New York city. They moved him up there. He was kind of a VP of something. And mm -hmm. then they moved him to Akron, which is where the tire and rubber industry was. And he was kind of the director of sales and marketing for the whole division. He traveled the whole world and I can remember moving from Charlotte to New Jersey after sixth grade. And that was hard because it was just when you're starting to get kind of social, you know, after sixth grade and sports and girls and, you know, just stuff. So we moved and I was the new guy in New Jersey and that was kind of cool. And that, you know, I came from the South, so that was kind of, it made me stand out a little bit. I could play a little baseball. So that stood out a little bit and, um, you know, I, New Jersey was great. And then, you know, learned how to drive and girlfriends and sports and, you know, the stuff, the social stuff, really good friends. My one of my closest friends, Matt Sinclair got to be good friends with him. And, and then we uprooted again and we moved to Ohio for, for 22 months. And I will say that the upside of Akron was the high school I went to there was probably the best high school I went to. Firestone high school was a, it was a really good academically really strong high school. Our baseball team was just pure shit, but the academically it was really strong and that served me well when I went on to, uh, you know, study in engineering in college, but Akron was just not for me. I didn't want to be there. I, mm -hmm. I wished we hadn't moved. I rebelled. Um, I did everything I could to screw it up. I talked my parents into buying a house with a, basically a basement apartment for myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was how I got them to see that this was shitty for me. And, but I got to go on the trip to select the house and I picked a house where I could basically escape. I had a bar, my own, I had my own den, I had multiple means of escape. Um, I could come and go whenever I wanted to. And it, it, with my dad being out of town a lot during that time and traveling, you know, for his job, it was a recipe for near disaster. So it's funny you say near disaster, because that's actually the next point is there's something that you tell Chris and Caroline, you've told me for a long time, and that's, you want to avoid the big mistakes. Can you uh, speak a little bit to that? Because I think, you know, when I have almost and gone ahead and done things that are stupid, mm -hmm. a lot of the time I'll, I'll hear your voice saying, mm -hmm. just avoid the big mistakes. Yeah, I, I always tell my kids and, and I tell people around me, you know, I, I wanted to be a parent. And I wanted to be an educator. I wanted to be in a position of, of being able to do things for other people. And when you're a parent, if you value being a parent, you know, you, you want your kids to fail a little bit. If, if they never fail, you're not going to really have much of a role. And so I always encouraged my kids not to be afraid of failure. I just told them, don't make the big mistake, you know, don't. Don't run over somebody texting and driving. Don't get a DUI when you're 16. Don't have a baby in high school. Those are not, there's anything wrong with those things. And people have perfectly good lives, but it changes your life in a way that you can't really know if it's going to be good or it's not going to be. Mm. And I just didn't want them to have a life changing experience at a young age that could potentially derail their dreams, their goals. You know, don't, don't make the big mistake. And 
I avoided the big mistake. I avoided, you know, a felony. You I snuck avoided, right by. <laughs> I, I, I skirted past felonies and, you know, things that, that, you know, were not okay. I skirted past expulsion and, uh, um, you know, getting caught doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And, um, and by the grace of God, graduation came and went, and I went on to NC State. And that's the and, next question. You're really moving just, right through the, through the timeline just, here. I it was it. close, though. I mean, I was, if I, I think if I'd have been in Akron another 60 days, it probably wouldn't have gone <laughs> so have been well. It uh, could have been not great. Well, luckily, you make it to NC State. Yeah, I did. And you make a, a hard decision to yeah. study chemical engineering, which you, surprisingly, and I think a lot of people that, you know, are in contact with you, you'll bring it up. And you always say it's the hardest thing you've ever done. Hardest thing ever. Which is uh, surprising because of the subsequent 10 years of medical school, et cetera. So can you talk about why it was so hard and how it molded you into a problem finder and a problem solver? I remember my dad did some recruiting in a previous version of his job. So he got to know a lot of these people at different, you know, universities and things. And he, we got to know this guy who, his name was Hal Hoffenberg and Uncle Hal ended up calling him Uncle Hal. So Uncle Hal ends up being, uh, over time becomes the chair of the Department of Chemical Engineering. Then he becomes the Dean of the Engineering School at NC State. He ends up being the athletics director when Valvano was going through all his stuff. But so he was like a family friend. So I remember he came, we went and had dinner with them in Raleigh. He and his wife, uh, Patsy, I think her name was. And we go and have dinner with them. And he tells me that if I can do this, if I can succeed at this, all doors will be open to me. If I can just succeed at this. I can go to med school, law school, vet school, business school, engineering school. I can get a job. I could teach. I could do whatever. I would be able to choose my the world path. Is your the world is your oyster. So I thought, okay, why not? Well, I didn't know anything about chemical engineering. I, I didn't even know what it was. And there's not one day of my life I have ever wanted to be a <laughs> chemical engineer. I just took the challenge and said, okay, uh, let's go. I went for it. And I don't think I could do it again. I don't think I could do four more years of that. That was the hardest thing I ever did. And it was conceptually hard. It was brain just torture. And I and never wanted to really do it. I just wanted to do it to get to the next step, which was med school. And I think that made it even harder. But I had a fraternity brother, Boyd Seyfried, one of my pledge brothers in, in college, who was probably one of the smartest people I ever met, who was also a chemie. And we buddied it up and, and God, if not for Boyd, I know I wouldn't have made it. Um, so I got to give, uh, you know, cheers to Boyd Seyfried because I never, cheers. never would have made it without Boyd. So, um, so I did it. And I do think that Chemi, what's great about Chemi is its processes. Chemi teaches you about processes. And that's really what problems are, right? Problem solving is process. And every problem has a solution, but not as it's not always a straight line, right? The distance between two points, the shortest distance is a straight line. Very few problems have a straight line from point A to point B. 
And so in, in engineering, you learn to look at things forward, backward, sideways, three-dimensionally, you know, time-limited, not time all these different things. And so I, I think that what it, teach, what it taught me was to be a problem solver. And I think that I don't shy away from problems. I, I try to think of myself as a good problem solver. And, and sometimes I'm, it's not a medical problem. Sometimes it's an interpersonal problem or sometimes it's a family problem or whatever it is, but I have to be able to be objective and stand back and say, okay, what's the path to point B? How do I get to point B? And I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at being objective and trying to find a solution to a problem. That is probably one of my gifts. So Kemi helped me. Yeah, I think um, one thing that's unique to you, though, is that when you face a problem that has a pre-existing solution, you generally will look at the other ways that you can solve it. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that in your fraternity, there were issues when you got there and you, and, and the, the, the answer, it's the way it always has been done has never been something that was final for you. So can you talk kind of about why you look at things that way and how that's affected you? Cause I, I've seen that from surgery to the distillery to other areas of your life where, you know, uh, the answer of that's the way it always has been done doesn't sit with you. I think that's one of the things that, um, if I have a pet peeve aside from country music, it would be the thought that this is the way we do it because we've always done it that way. That may apply to the best coconut cream pie that came from four generations ago and it has a history and that's why you do it. Or it's the way we, the, the, the mash bill for a bourbon you like, cause it's the way it's been that applies maybe in those scenarios. But that doesn't apply in many businesses and it doesn't apply in interpersonal things. It doesn't apply in, in the real world where the world is constantly evolving and technology is evolving and people are evolving. And I think that we as adults have to be better than that. We have to question. And so anytime I, I it's almost like a bell goes off in my head when somebody says that, or. I get the sense that we're doing it this way because we've always done it that way. The first thing that comes to my mind is this is an opportunity. Mm. Now it may be an opportunity to succeed. It may be an opportunity to fail. It may be an opportunity to do nothing, but there's an opportunity when that situation arises, when this, when the thought is we do it this way, cause we've always done it that way. That spells opportunity to me because certainly there are other ways. And were those other ways considered recently, is there a reason to reconsider that? Because there have been advancements mm -hmm. since the last time it was considered. And that was true when we did the whole internal brace thing with the elbow. It was, we revisited an idea that was canned 40 mm -hmm. years ago. And we did it this way for 50 years because that's the way we always did it. But with newer things, you can, you can move past that. So you have to remember the world is evolving around you. And, and if you don't take the time to evaluate those things that you do a certain way, because it's always been that way, 
in light of what's available today that wasn't available then, you never progress. Mm -hmm. And that's sad to me. I, I don't like thinking that way. So I think it's really powerful to see that statement as an opportunity because we come across it so often. And I think the, the potential to really make a, a valuable change by just asking the question and going a little bit further than other people would is, is huge. Uh, so I love that. I love that about you. Thanks. Um, I think one thing that people my age will want to hear from you about is like medical school, uh, residency fellowship. And like, mm -hmm. I don't know that, that period is hard for me to ask a question around because I'm not, that's not something that I'm, uh, you know, going after, but like, how did that period of time, I guess this is the way I frame it. How did that period of time mold you into being a rock star bone doctor? Well, let, let's start with medical school. Um, Medical school was maybe the most fun I ever had. <laughs> um, Duke adopted a plan as our class came in to be pass-fail. No class rank, just pass-fail, which a lot of medical schools are going to now, mm -hmm. you know, 30 years later. But Duke was on the front end of that. And it was an environment where you learned for the sake of learning. You didn't learn to compete with your classmates because these are all smart people. I mm -hmm. mean, I was by no means the smartest person in the class. I got there the first day and I sat next to this guy, Jay Sweat. Jay was the captain of the Michigan football team or something, middle linebacker. And, you know, or I forget where he went, Dartmouth or, you know, I'm sorry, he went to Dartmouth. Dart, captain of the Dartmouth football team looks like Adonis. <laughs> And, and brilliant, like 4.0 in an Ivy League school. And I'm like, I mean, I, I can't compete. So I'm, I'm surrounded by brilliant, right? And But everybody was, I would say 75% of the class adopted a study for the, learn for the sake of learning rather than learn to compete with your classmates mm -hmm. pretty early. Some people are still gunning for it, but we had a lot of fun at their expense. So medical school was a lot of fun. In, in medical school, you don't really learn, I, I would say you don't really learn your trade as a clinician. You don't learn to be a surgeon. You don't learn to be an orthopedic surgeon. You learn how to speak the language of medicine. Mm -hmm. You learn the language of the body. You learn how the body functions. You learn how to find answers. And you also learn what you want to be. And what you're going to do, you, you go from not knowing when you get there to knowing when you leave there and you apply for residency. Residency was probably the second most fun I ever had because I would, we, Tracy and I got married right after my internship and we moved to New York two weeks after we got married and we lived in, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in rent controlled housing. So we lived in this huge apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan for like 600 bucks a month. It's like and, friends. And it's like friends. And and Tracy had a job. She had more income than I did. And, and you're just on the job training. You're working, you know, 100 plus hours a week. But this was before there were restrictions on it, which I think they should remove. But anyway, we... You were in the trenches with your mates, you know, with your classmates and the people at the hospital. But you're learning your craft. You've spent so much time getting to this point 
and you're getting paid a little bit, you mm -hmm. know, less than a teacher, but you're getting paid a little bit, but you don't have time to spend it. So you're, you're working, but you're learning. And that's when you're just a sponge and you're learning. And I, I was fortunate to get to study at the temple. I mean, I, I learned at the Mecca and I knew I was surrounded by incredible again, you know, just like Duke. So I got benefited from an incredible experience in New York. And then five years of that and did my fellowship in Birmingham with Dr. Andrews. And again, I'm, I'm at the temple, you know, I'm learning from the best of the best. And I was just in the right place at the right time with the right skill set, And, you know, he was ready to add some people. And so he asked Lyle and I, Lyle Kane and I to, to join the practice. And we, we were the first people that he brought into the practice and we've been there ever since. And, you know, thank God for Lyle Kane. Cheers to Lyle. Cheers, Cheers, to Lyle. Cheers to Lyle. Yep. That's my man. Can't do it without you, buddy. Um, we've had the very great benefit of, of doing these things together for 20 something years. And yeah, I definitely want to ask about your relationship with yeah, him. Cause I think most people don't incredible. realize how your practices are so similar and how you guys started on the same day, which seems yeah. uh, pretty unlikely to, you know, find a partner that's so. Yeah. We had never met, you know, we, we had never met in residency and things and, and, um, we, there you go. So we, we met the first day of fellowship and, um, we were on the same kind of rotation. So we were around each other all year. We were both having babies. Um, and, um, we were pregnant with Chris, our oldest, you know, when, when we got there and he was born in October and, you know, Lyle covered for me, you know, Greg Carr, one of my other classmates might have come into my apartment and getting a video camera so I could have video of the day Chris was born. So, you know, you become very good friends very quickly and get to know each other's families. And, you know, Lyle and I have been side by side for going on 24 years now. Um, you know, I, I consider him one of my, if not the very closest friend I have, he's certainly the closest colleague. He's certainly one of my closest friends. And he and I actually spend a lot of time talking. We, we communicate great. We, we talk on the phone like girls sometimes mm -hmm. and we, we just get along and we would never do anything to hurt the other. It's just been an incredible partnership. Not everybody has that, you know, mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate that I have Lyle and we have a great partnership. The whole partnership is great, but I have this incredible just bond with, with Lyle that will never be broken. I mean, we've been through so much together that I just think it's, it's been very special and, and rewarding. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned, you know, being at the Mecca, learning from Andrews, like you're always kind of looking up, I feel like throughout medical school, throughout fellowship, even in your early career. And, uh, you can take away the humility, but like at this point, you and Lyle, you guys are the guys, at least in whatever microcosm of Andrews. So like, can you talk about the transition from like learning from the guy to being the guy and what that was like? And like, you know, is there a moment where you realized it? Probably not, but I think it's an interesting. No, I don't know that there's a moment, but I also think that anybody that does what we do including Jim Andrews. He's 81 years old coming up here in a few weeks. And if you asked him if he was still learning, he would say 100%, I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we ever stop learning. 
I mean, I think when you do, it's time to call it. I still reach out to Dr. Andrews with questions. I called him this week with a question about something. Yeah, he has more experience than everybody else. He's got 20 something more years of experience doing this than I do. And he's been an incredible resource. He's been a mentor. He's been a friend. He's been a partner. He's been like my orthopedic father. Um, and there are times where I think he treats me as well as he treats his kids. And, you know, he's, he's just been amazing to me. I, I couldn't have asked for a better mentor and. I think you realize when you think about the numbers of cases we do or the, you know, the opportunities we get, like, you know, dealing with this team or that team or WWE or whatever, you realize that those things would not have happened if I hadn't been here, if I hadn't said yes, if I hadn't done it, you know, and you think about like the book Outliers, you know, and the Malcolm Gladwell thing, all those people and their successes they had an opportunity and they said yes to it. Mm -hmm. The yes is important. You've got to say yes to these things. We said yes. Tracy and I said yes. It wasn't just me. It was her too. And We're going to get to a Tracy we question. Said, yeah, we said <laughs> yes to this opportunity and that uh, transcends, you know, a lot of time. And so these opportunities come around because we said yes, because we're here, because we've done the work and people recognize that I can do these things because I have the experience to do it. Yeah. Medical director of the world games, the USFL, all these things. I mean, people ask me to do these mm -hmm. things because they know we can do it. It's not just me. It's the whole practice. You yeah. know, they know the practice can do it. So, um, I think when you see those things happening, you realize like we, we accomplished what Dr. Andrews wanted for us. Mm -hmm which was to continue what he started. You know, I don't think any of us, Lyle or I, or anybody would say we, we did anything. We, we continued what Andrew started and we, we may have improved on it in some ways, but we didn't start it. Andrew started it. He was really the parent of this thing. And I think we'll take the credit for continuing it and maintaining it, but um, we had great examples to, to rely. So we had good shoulders to stand on. I love it. It reminds me of your, uh, speech at the citation award for SIGA when you mm -hmm. talked about, especially for people, I guess, listening, uh, mostly will be my age. And I think, you know, saying yes is one thing, but also keeping your eyes open to see them is something that's like trained. Yeah. Uh, it's important to keep your eyes open to see those opportunities because yeah. until they, until they start coming to you, you have to seek them out and say yes to them. Mm -hmm. You do. You have to make your opportunities. You have to, you have to recognize them when they, when you have them, but you have to be willing to say yes to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This question is from Garrett actually. Um, and that's all else equal. What alternative career path would you have explored? Outside of medicine. I mean, I think medically I would have pursued uh, non-cardiac thoracic. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually considered doing orthopedic oncology. I had a great mentor at Sloan Kettering and I always say, I think I was the best physician when I was working with, uh, you know, kids with orthopedic tumors. That was probably the best I ever was as a physician. I, it taught me a lot. I probably still carry it with me in the way that I handle some things, but. 
I think outside of medicine, I, I probably would have been a high school coach. I think that's the thing that's the most similar to my, why is that? It's either that or the military. I, I would have been okay in the military too. Mm -hmm. I probably would still be in the military if I'd done it. And I say that because I'm one of those extreme commitment people. If I commit to something, I'm going to do it. Um, I think that that's a trait that I got from my parents, from my grandparents, that your word, your commitment is the most inviolate thing and the most important thing you have. It's your integrity. And I just have a hard time violating that. And I, I think that that's something that is unfortunately less common. And I think that a generation of people that can really establish that as a mantra will be a very successful generation. Mm -hmm. If you commit to something, you should honor that. And I think it's unfortunate that we've allowed people to say it's okay to not honor our commitment. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that to me is, but why it, it, it means something to me. Why is coaching and teaching the closest thing to being orthopedic surgeon? I think that mm, orthopedic surgery is the coaching of medicine. I think we, you know, it's not like you operate on somebody or you treat them for a condition and you say, okay, you know, don't eat anything spicy. Call me if you need something. Mm -hmm. We have to manage these people for months and months and months and months, sometimes years. And so you're coaching these people through highs and lows, emotional things, successes and failures. Everything we does do has a failure rate. Sometimes you got to redo it by no fault of your own. It just doesn't heal or it doesn't go right or, and you have to redo it. Those are very emotional things. Your people's lives are affected and careers are affected and, and you know, you have to coach them through this. And I think that the best physicians, regardless of what specialty they're in, are the people who can emotionally engage their patients and get the best out of them. I, I think this dates back to my time with Coach Valvano. I, I had the chance to work in his office when I was in college. And I just remember he managed to get more out of mediocre talent at times than anybody I've ever seen. I've never seen anybody get more out of people than he could. He could get a team of not five-star athletes to beat teams full of five-star athletes. Mm -hmm. And that's coaching, right? I mean, that's what coaching is. You're trying to get more out of somebody. And, and I remember that and I remember enjoying that. And I thought I was decent at that. I thought that's really good to be able to motivate people to be better than what they think they can be. And I think that's what teachers really do. Good teachers, mm -hmm. good coaches, good high school teachers and coaches. They get more out of people than the best teachers. Their students leave them better than when they came in. It's not just knowledge. It's, it's, they're just better. Mm -hmm. They're more mature. They're more capable. They're more confident, whatever it is. And I think that that's something that I hold dear is the ability to coach people. And I think for me to be successful at my job as a orthopedic surgeon requires that. I could walk in and say, oh, you, 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 you tore your ACL. Okay, we're going we're to fix that tomorrow. Here's how we're going to do it. Do you have any questions? Yeah. And, you know, some people would be okay with that. 
this is emotional. They have a million questions and you have to put your arm around these people and, and help them get there. And that's the part of it that I value about what we do. That's why I think it's so close to being a teacher. Mm -hmm. I think teachers are among the most underappreciated people on the planet. They have such an important role and so many people don't respect them and don't appreciate them for what they do, but they may be the most important, you know, people in terms of the future of multiple generations. So I, I, I think it's, I, it's a profession that should be honored, but I agree. I think one thing that you've said to me before is that, uh, if you aren't willing to go be a coach or a teacher, like you shouldn't yeah, don't be, do what I do. You shouldn't do what you do. Don't and do what like, I do. I think that a lot of the people, a lot of people that want to be orthopedic surgeons, Google top doctor salary. Yeah, for sure. And orthopedic surgeon comes up. So like, sure. can you talk a little bit about the role of, uh, just like, I guess how the desire for money can like lead to the downfall of, you know, surgeons, people in general, and how you've kind of like drawn that line yourself. I, how I draw the line is very easy. I have no idea how much money I make. I'm, I really don't, man. I don't really want to know. It would, it would, it, if you asked me how much do I get paid to do fill in the blank, mm -hmm. I have no idea. And I don't really want to know because it would probably make me mad. And, and the other thing about our jobs is it declines. We never get a raise. We get a pay cut mm -hmm. on a fairly regular basis. I've been in practice for 23 years. I've never gotten a raise from an insurance we get a cut about every four years. So I think you can't do it for that. Yeah. If, if you don't get, if you don't feel reward by seeing the other person in the conversation, the person sitting across from you, if you're my patient, I don't feel rewarded by you succeeding. Mm -hmm. Medicine is the wrong profession for you. Doesn't matter what subspecialty it is. It's like being a teacher. There's only one good reason to be a teacher. One. And that is that you have a passion for seeing somebody else succeed, improve, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That the other person in your class, the person you're teaching, they succeed. That's your reward is their success. There, you can't be a teacher for the pay, for the schedule, for the... There's no other reason to be a teacher that's worth talking about. It's the same in medicine and a lot of people do it for the income, mm -hmm. but that's the wrong reason to do it. And you will eventually be very unhappy because mm -hmm. the income will decline. You'll be pissed that you don't get paid what you think you should. You're probably a bad doctor. You're not going to be a great doctor. You got to do it for the right reasons. And if you're not passionate about seeing the other person in the conversation succeed, you should find something else to do. It's not for you. Definitely not for you. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I think that was good, a good segment there. Uh, so throughout your life, you've had to make a ton of sacrifices. Uh, Tracy has made all of those sacrifices alongside you. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how she has been integral in making you into the man you are and how she has impacted your family your life i mean she is the only reason 
that I can do what I do. I, I could never, we, she made the decision, you know, she has a master's degree from NYU. She has a nurse practitioner's degree, went to Chapel Hill and not that that's anything that special, yeah, but Tar Heels, whatever. <laughs> she, she went to Chapel Hill and did well there, got a nursing degree there. Um, you know, she had a career in front of her and we wanted to have a family and that's what we prioritized. And we came to Alabama for what we thought was going to be one year. And I promised her in the U-Haul with the dog, with Hogan in mm -hmm. the U-Haul crying in July in the heat, you know, seven months pregnant and angry. And we crossed the Georgia, Alabama border. And I promised her with everything I held sacred that we were out of this hee-haw hell in 365 days. And that was 24 years ago. So, you know, she made the sacrifice to be at home, to give up her career, to raise our kids, to, to be a stay at home mom with an advanced degree from NYU and the ability to make a six figure income. She put that away to raise our kids and let me do what I do. Mm -hmm. So. If not for Tracy, I could never have achieved my goals or accomplished my dreams and recognized my dreams to do what I do. And, and all the credit goes to her. I mean, I do the work, but I see that as not a sacrifice. I see that as rewarding. I, I love what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people that, yeah, it's still work and it's, I'd rather be at home than be at work, but it's, I love what I do. So. Mm -hmm. You know, Tracy, Tracy really is the one who makes it happen. If not for her, I could never do it. So she deserves, you know. Yeah. Cheers to Tracy. Cheers to Tracy. She deserves. She raised a couple of good kids too. She raised two pretty good kids. Um, we raised two pretty good kids. Um, yeah, we, you know, all the credit goes to her for, for allowing, you know, I, it, it could have worked out the same way if she had gone back to work, but. I think it's unlikely mm -hmm. and I mean, it's possible it could have been better, but at, at the same time, I think it's been pretty good for me and for us. And, um, yeah, she deserves the credit for that. Mm -hmm. It hasn't always been easy on her either. <clears throat> you know, she, she gets sideways about it at times because she doesn't make money and, you know, it bothers her. It, it she feels like she's, you know, contributing. And I have to tell her that's, that's not the way to see it. You know, you do a lot. She works very she hard. She does. She does a lot. She works. Um, she's extremely hardworking. She is. For sure. I agree. Um, let's talk about a more recent risk that you've taken business endeavor, which mm -hmm. is Dread River Distilling Company, uh, here in Birmingham, the first distillery in, in mm -hmm. the, is it Birmingham, the state of Alabama or something? First like in Birmingham. Um, yeah. And a hundred years. First, first bourbon, bourbon made in Birmingham in a hundred years. Right like here. A bottle of it right there. So can you, what's the story behind it? Uh. It starts with chemical engineering, actually, at NC State. I, I never wanted to be a chemi, and I um, I remember going to class, and, and we were, one of my classes, we were talking about um, 
distillation and fermentation. And I remember thinking, this is important. I better go pay attention to this one because I wanted to learn how to brew beer. So like every college kid, you mm -hmm. want to know how to make beer. And so I learned that stuff and I started making my own beer. And I still never wanted to be a chemi, but beer brewing and distilling are definitely chemical yeah. engineering things. This is chemical engineering at its finest. So I yeah, went to a bunch of breweries and distilleries over, you know, a long period of time, over decades. Mm -hmm. And I, I was at a distillery in South Carolina where we had this house at the, the Fusky Allen Rum Company. And the guy who ran it, uh, a guy named Tony Chase says to me, you know, Birmingham is the largest city in North America without a commercial distillery. Wow. And I thought that's bullshit. There's no way he could possibly know that that's, he's just blowing smoke. So I got back from the trip and I reached out to somebody at the city and I asked them if it was true. And they said, you know, they didn't know, but they'd get back to me. So they got back to me and sure enough, Birmingham's the largest city in North America without a commercial distillery. So what are you thinking doc? And I thought, not thinking anything. I was just curious. A couple months later, they reached back out and said, the mayor wants to talk to you about your idea. So what idea? I said, the distillery. I said, okay. So I sit down with Mayor Bell and Lisa Cooper, who was his chief development officer. And from there, we just started talking about building a distillery in downtown Birmingham. And it went on from there. And originally the plan was to build a small distillery. And the further we got into it, the rules and the laws, and we went and looked at all these different distilleries and it went from a it project expanded. that was uh, going to be about a million dollars to a project that was about $8 million. So I learned a new term called scope creep. Uh -huh. um, yeah. and, and then uh, that sounded more like scope explosion. But um, yeah, so we opened the first commercial distillery in Birmingham in 100 years in uh, August of 2019, six months before a global pandemic. It's just perfect timing. Mm -hmm. Had that one right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, any of my investors that are critical of me for not seeing that coming, I have to remind them I'm an orthopedic surgeon. You know, we are the knuckle dragging idiots of medicine. So I don't I don't necessarily know about global pandemics. Not a virologist. Yeah, I'm not a virologist. Yeah. So um what what have you learned? Like, you know, this is a finished product here, and that took hundreds and hundreds of hours and meetings and, mm -hmm. and traveling and uh, but it's really good. And it is good. <laughs> it's really and, good. Uh, you know, wells underneath the building that the fire department had to get out and, and a million different problems that God. needed to go from A to B. Hmm. Uh, so how, like, that's a statement, not really a question, mm. but I know you have a lot to say about it. I will say that I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm. Um, I entered into a business that I knew very little about knowing that it had a lot of risk involved. And my thought was that the idea was good, but there were certainly going to be bombs, grenades, bogeys that I, there's no way I was going to see them coming. Mm -hmm. And there were going to be some failures. This was going to be wrought with failure. And my thought was, I need to surround myself with people who can handle failure, but not fail the same way twice. Learn from their mistakes, move on, grow, get better, succeed. And also people who 
had some knowledge of things that I didn't. And where could we get the knowledge if we didn't have it? And so we started by establishing a process to learn what we didn't know. At, at no point did I ever want to run Dread River. I don't run Dread River. I have never run Dread River. I don't know how to turn the machines on. I don't know how to sell you a drink. I can't do those things. I'm the chairman of the board and I'm the weakest board member. There's some really smart people on the board. I'm, I'm the weakest business person on the board, but I know how to find people. I know how to put groups of people together that can function well and have commonality of goal and interest and align purpose to succeed. And I also knew going into this, that there was a chance that this was going to be very much a heavy lift for me financially. Mm -hmm. And I had to be committed to it. And I was either going to commit to it and do it. Commit your word. Or it's not going to, I have to be willing. Mm -hmm. And if, when it doesn't work and sure enough, COVID hit and it was, we were under and I had to do it and I've had to do it ever since. And I, I'm not going to let it fail. And we're getting there. It's, it's happening. Mm -hmm. We're now. Uh, direct to consumer in 42 states. You got subscribers. Listen so to, you can order you know? Dread River direct to your door. If you go to the website, www.dreadriver.com, you can pull down the menu and hit shop and you can have it shipped straight to your door. It's good too. It's right here. You have it right so in front of you. We make uh, vodka, rum, uh, Caribbean style rum, a very West coast style gin, which is a very floral and citrusy gin, gin, not much juniper in that, the very minimum. We make, uh, we're making a barrel aged rum. We make blue agave. Can't call it tequila cause it's not made in Mexico. We make blue agave. We make an aged agave, double barrel aged agave, which I will say is probably the best thing we've made. It's incredible. And we're making it again as fast as we can. So if it's out of stock, we're making it as quickly as we can. It was actually a mistake. We actually didn't even mean to do it. And we may have created a whole new class of spirit in the spirits world. And it ended up being our most expensive product. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. We make uh, bourbon, single barrel bourbon, rye, sherry aged rye. We make whiskeys, which is a 70, 30 blend. Our bourbon is the same mash bill as Pappy and Weller. It's all of our bourbon is weeded. Very smooth. The Alabama heat adds some age to it. It's hot here and we get a lot more barrel age quickly because of the heat. So we're, our single barrels are all minimum three years. Most of them are pushing four. And the bourbon is a straight bourbon, which means it's been aged at least two years, usually closer to three. This one in particular, this was the first one. This one was, um, finished in rum barrels. And, uh, so it's, it's really, really good good booze. We are heart cut only, so which means we don't put any tails in our, in our spirits. Um, it makes it a little higher quality spirit. There's only ethanol. So your body knows what to do with ethanol. It's not that you can't get hung over drinking our stuff, but it's a little harder because there's no tails in there. And, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's been a really fun project. We make our own beer. The food's really good. Uh, we got written up in the Rob Report recently. We got written up in uh, USA Today, Bourbon Plus Magazine, and um, 
are working on some projects that will even be uh, expanding into the racing world and maybe WWE and some other things. So we're now shipping all over the country. We're starting to do some stuff in the Caribbean and Canada, and we actually just shipped something to Abu Dhabi. So, uh, Okay, you know, we're UAE. Yeah, we're UAE. I mean, you certainly learn how to advertise. Yeah, we're, we're sure. getting there. My business partner, John Kubelik, and are, we're, we're you're getting there. And I have to give them credit. I don't work there. I don't I have a day job. So I just uh, I just try to help them anyway. Well, hopefully the Lewis and Kyle show just brings in a, a hey, flood. Maybe uh, we need to do a Lewis and Kyle barrel. Maybe so. so a single barrel good. for Lewis and Kyle. I think be about 250 bottles. You guys could sell them to your best we should uh, do it. podcast customer uh that's funny um in losing college show fashion though we are entering the bonus round bonus round check <laughs> which is do uh, i need more booze for this no uh it's uh just less thematic uh questions my first one is about your philosophy on giving because you're an extremely generous person mm. um what is your philosophy on giving my philosophy in giving is if I have it to give, I have to give it. And I say that because if I die tonight and I got to stand before St. Peter tomorrow and I get asked the question, why didn't you give this? Cause you had so much, I would have a hard time answering why I didn't give it. So if I have, if somebody asks me for something, I generally say yes. And I think it's my obligation to do that. I, I would have a hard time saying no if somebody really needed something or asked something of me. I just I just don't know how to say no. What is your favorite place you've ever been? You've been all over the place. What was... Favorite place I've ever been? Well, favorite place I've ever lived, I would say, is Florence, Italy. Mm -hmm. If I could move my world anywhere on this earth, I would move it to Florence. Uh... Favorite place domestically? Uh, I love New York City. Mm -hmm. I loved living in New York. Um, I love the Duke Chapel. Got married in the Duke Chapel. Um, that's always been a special place for me. The uh, Fusky Island has always been a special place for me in South Carolina. Yeah, those are, mm -hmm. those are probably my favorites. What is a... And I feel like we might have already touched this earlier, but what do you think the most common misconception about what you do is? I think probably one of the most, it's on two fronts. Um, one is that you have to be an athlete to come see us. Athletes, the, you know, pro athletes, college athletes, there aren't that many of them. Mm -hmm. And if that's the only people we saw, we wouldn't really be that busy. So anybody can come see us. And, and that makes up 90% of our practice is just regular people like you and me. Um, I'm an athlete. So. Oh, well, okay. You're an athlete. I'm, I'm, I was an athlete. I can't say I'm an athlete anymore. Um, the other misconception I would say is that, is that because you can use a scope, you're a sports guy, sports doc. Mm-hmm. Sports medicine is not the use of a tool like an arthroscope. Sports medicine is the shared urgency of the patient. Mm. So there isn't one of the things about sports medicine is the National Board of Medical Examiners has declared that sports medicine is a unique body of knowledge from the rest of orthopedics. 
that doesn't exist in any other subspecialty in orthopedics. In fact, most medical specialties don't have that. It's only a handful, like infertility, hand, um, electrophysiology and cardiac world. There's like four or five subspecialties in all of medicine that have this kind of added qualification and sports medicine is one of them in mm -hmm. orthopedics. And so basically if you are, if you, if you are, if you have that, that qualification, it means you've not only done this training, but you've passed this test. It, there is no book in sports medicine. The book is defined by the patient. And that's very different from a lot of medicine where there is a book, there mm -hmm. is a standard, there is a, there is what's expected of you. In sports, it's constantly evolving. The book changes every week. It's, it's different with each person. And so I could have two people with the exact same injury mm -hmm. and they could be treated completely differently depending on what they do, what they want to do. One person, they might even play the same sport. They might be the same age, play the same sport at the same level. But one might be in a contract year and one might not be in a contract year. And that changes how you're going to approach this. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's the common misconception is that anybody can do sports medicine. Sports medicine is not an arthroscopy thing. Sports medicine is knowing all of the things you have to know mm -hmm. to help that person sitting across me and share the urgency of their thing, whether they're a lawyer, a janitor a stay-at-home mother, an athlete, doesn't matter. You have to share that urgency with them. Mm -hmm. And you have to match that and equal that. You can't come up shy of that. You can't put your own, oh, I don't think I'd want to climb Mount Everest. If that person wants to climb Mount Everest, your job is to help make that happen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you got to tell them, I think this is a bad idea. Or I don't think you're going to make it, but that doesn't mean you can tell them that's not their goal. You have to share that goal with them and do what you can to help them. So sports medicine is very different than most people think it is. And not everybody who can use a scope is a sports doc. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the common things that people miss. On the, along the same lines, uh, one thing that I think I'd be remiss to miss would be you've operated on a ton of famous people. I mean, if we went downstairs, there's like jerseys and John Cena and, you know, The Undertaker. And I saw him yesterday. A ton of <laughs> other, Brett Favre. I mean, uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, and that's really interesting. Like, is there a, a difference? I mean, I, I know your answer is going to be no, but like, uh, I don't know. It's just interesting that you do that. I don't really have a question um, around it. But. You know, the... I'll speak to the WWE people. I saw Mark Calloway, the undertaker in the office yesterday. And, um, you know, he's just as good a guy, a normal guy. He's just really big, you know, and John Cena, maybe one of the funniest human beings I've ever met. He's just really big. Uh, you know, they're all just really normal, nice people. I really enjoy working with them of all the athletes that as a group, as a whole, they're, they're the most just everyday people. They just, they play a role. They have, they're athletic. They're, they, they have a show they, they do, and they work hard. They're among the hardest working athletes. They work 52 weeks a year. There aren't many athletes that do that. 
You know, these guys are on 52 weeks a year, live shows. They travel all over the world there. It's, it's, it's an impressive organization. So I, I really have enjoyed, it's been one of the more rewarding parts of my career. So I really have enjoyed that. Um, I think that with athletes, you have to, you have to have a knowledge of what not only their sport is or their condition is, but what are the environmental factors that affect them? I had a young man today who's 24 who was a previous first-round draft pick of a Major League Baseball team, and he hasn't made it to the majors yet in six years. He got drafted out of high school. He's had a couple of injuries, and, you know, he just hasn't made it could not be any nicer of a young man and and he's got a good joint he's going to be okay but the cards he's been dealt just timing wise have been awful he's been like right on the cusp of making the major league roster uh-huh. and he got hurt and it's just like the deck this kid's been dealt is just it sucks and you know i have to deal with his agent his i have to deal with him his agent his parents the coaches the trainers the docs for the team who are all friends of mine and managing all of that is part of what we do. People don't see the communication that goes on. That's one thing that's insane to to these things is how many people you talk to on the phone every day, how like it's nonstop. Like I think we probably, you probably missed 50 text messages while I've been sitting here. But you have to, because otherwise everybody assumes you're just scamming their, you're taking their assets (laughs) and, you know, that you're just marketing, trying to do, trying to build your practice. Oh. I mean, my practice is big enough. I don't need any more. But, you know, these are friends of mine. I called the team doc for the team today because he's a colleague of mine. And I wanted him to know how it went, what we did. He was so appreciative of the phone call. You know, a lot of people don't take the time to do that. And, and to me, I just think that's a collegial thing. Like, you know, we're all good at this stuff. We're all good at what we do. I, I can't take the approach that I'm better or not as good as these other people. I have to yeah. just treat them as equals and yeah. I would want them to do the same for me. And, you know, when I, when a WWE person has surgery somewhere else, that's great. Just reach out to me and tell me how it went, you know, yeah. so I know. And that way I can help them as they're getting through our system. Cause I know our system better than you do. So I, I just think it's important to communicate like that. I think that's one of the it vital reminds things. Reminds me of like, uh, like, uh, high school coaches and parents, and, mm-hmm. you know, the, just, it's, it just draws back the mm-hmm. parallel between what Definitely. you do and, and coaching. So one thing that I've noticed, uh, is just how people talk about the experience of going to your office and the, you know, can kind of, kind of like VIP level treatment that everybody gets can you speak a little bit to uh your office and the people that help you do your job uh uh, there is not enough ways to say thank you slash i appreciate you to all those people because i i get all the credit right people give us the physicians all the credit for for all the things that happen there, you know, we're the kind of people on the door or names on the door or whatever, and they come to see us, but th- there's 24 physicians in Andrews sports medicine. There's 170 employees. I mean, there's like six employees for every doc. And I have four of them that only work for me. 
not to mention the OR staff that do our cases with us every day. And this is the only thing they do is orthopedics. It's, they don't do anything else. They don't do general surgery and ENT and ophthalmology. They just do what we do. So these are highly, highly specialized people. And, you know, from our CEO, Lisa Warren, who I will still say is the best decision Lyle and I ever made as business partners was to hire Lisa. She's the badass of practice administrators. I would stack her up against anybody. But the, the people who work directly for me, you know, Deb, Christina, Gina, and Melissa, all the people who have worked for me over the years, from Melissa Williams and Kelsey McLemore and uh, Jessica Frame, Lara, um, you know, everybody that's worked for me over the years, Brittany Destel, um, Sarah Calhoun, I mean, there's been a number of them. They, they've all been amazing, and I still talk to all of them. Um, they're, they're incredible people that just get it done. We see an enormous amount of patients. We run them through this mill of our office, which is really nice to look at and it's efficient and we do a good job with it. The x-ray people, the front desk people, the business office people, the administrative people, everybody, the PAs. I mean, it's a whole army of people without whom I can't see 60 plus patients a day mm -hmm. and I can't take care of all these people and get these things done. I had a case today, this young man, like 13 year old kid was throwing yesterday and cracked off a piece of bone in his elbow. He's from just over the border in Tennessee, north of us. And he went and saw somebody locally and they told him that he shouldn't get it fixed. He's a thrower and his parents weren't comfortable with that. So they drove down into Alabama to see somebody up in Huntsville and everybody's on spring break this week mm -hmm. and they told them, well, you know, we can do it next week. We can't really see you this week. They called one of our people and one of our people saw him in Coleman yesterday and sent me the x-ray. And I said, that kid, that needs to be fixed. Yeah. And it was displaced. And I mean, the kid's 14 years old. He's a pitcher. And so we called the family this morning and said, tell your son not to eat anything. And can you get here by two o'clock? The number of people who had to do a lot of work to make that happen for this kid, there's probably 10 people that had to do an extra two hours of work mm. for this kid to get that elbow fixed today. I mean, it took me 30 minutes to fix it. So really, I didn't mind adding the kid onto the schedule. It was the right thing to do. We did the right thing for the kid. But it probably took 20 hours worth of people's work to make that happen. And I can't do any of that. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. And, but without those people, things like that don't happen. And we are expected to say yes to these things. We're expected to make these things happen. When people call us, they want their stuff fixed. And we got to make it happen. So, I mean, cheers to, I mean, cheers to the staff. I mean, without whom none of this happens. And I couldn't do any of it. And I, I will say that the four women who work directly for me are as good as any that have ever. And, um, Christina, my, my, my work, call her my work wife. 
Um, she is just incredible. What she gets done in a day, I don't think there are many people that could do it. So um, I just I just don't have enough ways to say thank you for all of them. Amazing. What are you most proud of in your life? I think I know your answer, but. Uh... I'm most proud of my family. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I Tracy, I've been married for almost 30 years, and I the best decision I ever made was asking Tracy to marry me. And, you know, I, I could never have this life. I could never have this smile, have this life without her. I don't think I'd want to. And we have two incredible kids who I could not be more proud of. And I'm, I'm enjoying, I'm at a point in life where I'm just enjoying seeing them have fun and enjoy their lives. You know, they're both adults and, and there's so much around the corner for them both that I just am enjoying seeing them go through every phase of life. And I'm, I'm proud of our family, mm-hmm. you know, and you've been a huge part of that. I'm, I'm proud of you too. I'm, Thanks, <laughs> I see you as, as one of my own and you know, I tell people all the time, there's a fair number of days where I like you better than her. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're part of the family. Yeah. Uh, thanks doc. Uh, sure. So I've been dating your daughter for Here it comes. quite a long time, it was seven years, seven years. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Caroline and how I be asking you that question? Um, I will say cheers to you, dude, because it's been amazing. You're an incredible guy, and I could not be happier to have you as part of our family. Um, my kids are both unique, very different. Um, Chris is very level and even and steady Eddie. Almost, you have to really try to get a rise out of Chris. It's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, it's it's not easy because he's pretty steady Eddie. Mm-hmm. Caroline is like Tracy. She's just you know volatile. She at any moment you know I you know oh. Tracy's nickname is Jenga because oh. you ever played the game Jenga? You know you pull the one thing. All you gotta do is pull one wrong thing and the whole thing collapses. It, it takes two seconds. And, and Caroline shares that with with Tracy. She's, she's pretty volatile at times. I think it's the red hair. Caroline was really tough as a baby. She was really tough to manage. She was, she was, she was not good. (laughs) Uh, when she turned about 12, she went from being this tough to manage redhead to being the sweetest, kindest, most gentle, loving soul. And she is so unique in her approach to life and people. She's a badass in her own right. I mean, she's brilliant. She's tough. She's fun. She's beautiful. She's all these things. She's incredible equestrian and, you know, national champion twice and all these things. But I think the most amazing thing about her is her heart. She has one of the kindest hearts of anybody I have ever met. And I, I think that there is something very special about her in her sweetness and her ability to do for other people without 
even being asked to do it. She just has a sweetness about her that mm-hmm. is very rare. And um, it's very genuine, too. She doesn't, it's not made up. It's not forced. It's just who she is. And I I think that that probably is a combination of, of Tracy and I. And her selflessness is Yeah, certainly... I was going to say, it's like the feminine version of your, like, coaching, teaching. It really is. Like... But a lot of it comes from Tracy, you know. And she and Tracy are very close. They have very similar personalities in a lot of ways. But she's super sweet and but capable of being tough. And I, I genuinely don't worry too much about Caroline. She's, Mm -hmm. she's very capable of making her own decisions. I don't really worry about Chris. You know, Chris is doing great. They're both impressive. You know, Chris, people don't see this about Chris. Chris is the most competitive human being I've ever met in my entire life. And I thought Tracy was competitive, but I think Chris is actually more competitive. Mm -hmm. Chris just manages to hold it down. Like you don't see Chris's competitiveness. He's a it's not on the surface, yeah, but it's in there, and it's it's impressive how competitive he is. Tracy wears it. I mean, you you know because she you'll hear it. She'll you'll tell see you. It. She'll tell you. Yeah, Chris, you won't know it. He is ferociously competitive, more so than Tracy. Um, and I think that rubs off on Caroline sometimes. She, she can be pretty competitive. So I think all of us, all four of us are pretty competitive, but, um, I'm very blessed. Both of my children are incredible individuals and, and they're, they're family people. And I, that'll be interesting to see as they start their own families and things, what they adopt as, you know, ways of doing things that are different. You know, I certainly think all of us learn from our parents, things we don't want to do. Mm. And then later you realize there's things you do want to do because maybe they had it right, you know, and, and you think all along, like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to do that. And then you may not do some of those things, but you realize there's a lot of things they did right, you know, and you start to adopt some of those things. Like I'm trying to adopt, you know, Sunday dinner because mm-hmm. they're here and, you know, I want them to come for dinner, just one dinner a week. It's, it's not too much to ask. But I think it's important for us to do those things, you know, for us to have a meal together. Um, it could be breakfast. I don't care what it is, but just, just one meal a week. It's just all I ask out of, you know, seven days, just have one meal with us. And, um, you know, I don't mind asking that. I don't ask a whole lot of my kids at this stage, but I don't mind asking that. Well, now it's recorded. So yeah, I'm show up it. for dinner, damn yeah. it. <laughs> um, consider cooking too. Definitely consider cleaning up. Well, last question, and this one's also from from Garrett. Shout out to Garrett. Uh, cheers, Garrett. Yeah, cheers to Garrett. He's dishing out Dread River. Uh, Sweet. A book or three that changed your perception of the world uh, or your perception of, of people? I'd say among my favorite books are the Malcolm Gladwell books. Outlier is probably my favorite. Um, I mean, obviously aside from the Bible, mm-hmm. still a book, but aside from it's like 66 books or something, you know, yeah. it's like, aside from that, um, the Malcolm Gladwell books are good. Um, medically speaking, I would say a book called the price we pay written by a surgeon named Marty McCary from, uh, Johns Hopkins. He's a MPH and he, he wrote a book basically 
describing a lot of what's wrong with our health system and what he is doing to, to try to change that. I think he's a super smart guy. And, um, I think we have to hold people account. You know, I think that that's, that's maybe the militaristic type of background that I didn't have in my immediate family, but I would have been okay with. I, I don't like the idea that we don't hold ourselves accountable for what we've done mm -hmm. to the world around us. And in it's medicine, like failure, failure has, or failures and orphan and success as many fathers. Or yeah, like exactly. Um, you know, I, I think that we as healthcare professionals have to realize what we've done to make it worse. But also, what can we do to make it better? Mm. And, and who can we hold accountable? And, and not just to say it's your blame. We're not, it's not to look to place blame. It's to look to say, we got to stop that and change course here. And, and otherwise, it's not going to get better. Um, and all of that happens in the world around us while we're still taking care of patients every day. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, books that, that teach you to look inside of yourself to find solutions to problems rather than looking, I, I never like to, I'm, you'll never, I don't think you've ever heard me try to blame anybody. I don't, I think that's pointless. I would rather accept blame mm -hmm. than place blame. Uh, and people whose first thought is to blame somebody rather than to think, what's my part in this? Mm -hmm. I, I always want to know what my part in is not, this is your problem or you did this or you're to blame. I, okay. What's my part in this? And I always thought about that with my kids and with Tracy, you know, okay, they're having this issue or this problem. What's my part in this? So I, I think that, you know, books that push you to investigate your own self a little bit more probably make you better as a person, as a leader, as a father, as a husband, as you know, and, um, there's been so many of those over time, probably too many to count, but, um, those kind of things I think are valuable. Excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for, uh, your time. No, thank you. I've enjoyed every minute the of Lewis it. and Kyle show. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Sweet. To all the Lewis and Kyle fans. Yep. Go out and Cheers. buy your Dread River. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Wraps up another wonderful episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. I appreciate you listening. Uh, I have three quick takeaways, and these are kind of the things that I've learned from him over the last seven years of being around him a ton and him pouring into me. Um, and they came up throughout the episode, but these are the three that really just ring in my ears as I walk through my everyday life. Uh, number one is just hard work. I mean, it's impossible to know how hard he works just from listening to a podcast. But after years of, of watching him, I mean, he's just a machine. Uh, and it's not some it's not always things that he wants to do. And it's very impressive. Um, just day in and day out his ability to grind things out. And it really inspires me to work harder. Uh, number two, if you have it, give it. And I, I asked that question on purpose because I knew his giving philosophy. Um, but I think it's something that's so important. Like it's not just money, but it's time and it's energy. And those are the things that he's constantly willing to give. Um, 
really without without question and i think that you know <clears throat> he who waters will be watered and i think it's clear that dr dugas does a ton of watering and helping others um and number three is don't make the big mistakes as we talked about throughout the episode that rings in my head before uh i do something stupid and whether or not I end up doing it, it always helps to give me a litmus test as to whether or not it's worth it. But that wraps up uh, one of my favorite episodes, the Lewis and Kyle show I've ever recorded. I really enjoyed uh, learning those things from Dr. Dugas, and it's uh, a special thing for me. So thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the episode.